Is it on? Remember how this works? Yep. Yay! We're back! Test, test, test. Yeah, there we go. Well, Christian, here we are back in the booth, back here in Thorpe Studios. We must have had like four, five people say, hey, didn't you guys have a podcast? Yeah, it was at least three, maybe four. And, you know, we told those three or four people, you know, okay, if the Cougs and the Huskies on the last week of the season are about to play for the Rose Bowl, then we will uh, we'll do a podcast. And not only did the Cougars and Huskies make it the last week of the season, Utah made this game for the Rose Bowl. They lost their quarterback. They lost their running back. They took any, you know, this is Ouch. a throwback. This is 97. They're going all the way. The Pac-12 North winner is going to play for the Rose Bowl, Christian. There is no truth to the rumor uh, that they are just going to replay this game next week in Santa Clara either. I had a couple people ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, not really, but, you know. <laughs> well, I, everyone will be watching Cal versus Stanford. I do That's think. the big game that week. <laughs> I do think, like, if ever there were a year where it's like, hey, just, just let the North, you know, let, let one and two in the North go at this one again. Utah's already lost to both these teams. Like, let's just have these guys play twice, but. No, they, the winner will have to go uh, play Utah in a perfunctory Pac-12 championship game um, in which, you know, whoever wins the Apple Cup is, is obviously going to go in as a heavy favorite. Anything can happen. Um, but, yeah, for the for the most part, you're, you're looking at the Apple Cup winner as the probable Pac-12 entry into the Rose Bowl unless mm-hmm. several teams ranked uh, in the top six of the college football rankings lose, college football <gasps> playoff rankings lose. Washington State wins. Washington State wins the Pac-12 title game. And then maybe they're not going to the Rose Bowl, Jacob. Maybe they're going somewhere uh, a little shinier. You know, it's been that kind of season for the Cougars. So maybe their karma will hold up. Uh, but, you know, so, so deadline, no deadline is back. Uh, support Etsy Bravo when you're in town for the Apple Cup. But this isn't really no deadline, is it, Christian? Because you've kind of ruined the integrity of no deadline. No deadline was about former sports writers gabbing about the Cougars and Huskies, and you're you're a GD sports writer again, aren't you? Yeah, I know. I, I went and uh, I went and 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 made myself uh, a member of the working press again voluntarily. Um, yeah, you know, a, a cool opportunity came up. I think when we started this podcast, it was it was kind of funny. You know, we were, you know, both, I think, um, enjoyed our, our careers as sports writers and were kind of looking forward and, and um, not thinking that that was going to be a part of the plan again, uh, kind of enjoying watching from the couch and, and just kind of having the same perspective as everybody else. But, um, you know, this opportunity came up, The Athletic, which was a, a site that I had subscribed to for a few months to sort of support my friends and, and really came to enjoy I found out they were hiring a, a UW writer and um, started talking to them about it. And, and uh, next thing you know, I was, I was joining up. So, and it's, it's been awesome. It's been, you know, it, it's everything that uh, every sports writer, I think every journalist um, wants to be about telling those deeper stories, unique stories, kind of off the beaten path and taking time with things and, and not rushing to get six headlines in a day up and, um, you know, like like we say, making people fall in love with the sports page again. So it's it's been awesome. It, it, it is such a, a cool venture, and I, I certainly was happy to see you leave the the world of workforce development and and start writing stories again. And and the the freedom they've given everyone to to write these really in depth pieces. It certainly seems like it's uh, hopefully where the future of media starts to go. It seems like people have uh, have reinvested in good storytelling. It's you guys only write the stories that. 
uh, back in the day, we all hoped to write, uh, you know, once a month or something when we had a little bit of free time. Uh, and, you know, they don't have a, a dedicated Cougars writer, but I want to make sure the Cougar fans listening know that uh, Vince Grippy, former SRB writer, sort of the, the godfather of the SRB, uh, he's been writing a lot of stories. Jason Jenks uh, went out and wrote a Gardner Minshew profile that is sort of the last word on uh, this really unique person in Washington State football history now, uh, just a, a really funny, really uh, uniquely told story about the quarterback. And, and there's a lot of content there for Wazoo fans. And if you you know like the Mariners or Seahawks or any other Seattle sports teams, they've got lots there for you. Chantel Jennings has been out writing Cougar stuff. Yeah, so. I was going to say, uh, just this morning, actually, and we're recording this here on, on Monday afternoon, um, Chantel Jennings uh, published uh, a really interesting uh, story about Gardner Minshew's background and how he grew up essentially learning the air raid. So if you wonder why he looks so natural and, and so savvy in, in Mike Leach's system in one year, um, go read that story and you'll you'll get some some good details. And, about, it, and uh, it's really cheap. It. And it's really it cheap. Is, and you've got cheap. money. Christian developed the workforce. So yeah, the work. You know. I was only there 10 months. I feel like uh, the, the um, workforce was pretty well developed in that time. Unemployment rate's low at now, least it's thanks Pierce to Christian. Uh, so get out there, subscribe. Uh, we won't uh, talk yours off any longer, but make sure, you know, you're going to be in town. Go to Ned, Go to No Deadline. John the bartender will make you a No Deadline at Etsy Bravo. And, uh, you know, support your local businesses in Pullman. But, hey, so uh, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the Cougars and Huskies. We've got some catching up to do. Yeah, um, a little bit has happened. Well, since we last sat for this podcast. You know, I, I know our listeners, and I, I know all the Cougar fans are thinking, well, so wait, so one of these guys is a is a real sports reporter again, and it's not the one who uh, who's talking about our team. But don't you worry. The, the Huskies, kind of a boring season. Yeah. Not, um, not really what you were hoping for. Not a bad season. Certainly a great season for Sark, or if you were alive during the Willingham era. But, eh. It's, uh... I, I was I was talking about this the other day. It's unlike any season that I've been around for in that it has not come close to delivering upon the expectations that were, were placed upon this team in the preseason. And yet they have managed to uh, captivate their fan base enough that everybody is still really, really interested here in, in week 13. And they're still um, playing for a run. And, and they still have a ton to play for. Yeah, exactly. that's that's the interesting thing. Uh, you know, I talked to some Husky fans, like, after the Oregon game. Uh, that was the loss that sort of, you know, finally shut the door on the CFP for good in, in mid-October, which I don't think people were anticipating that, that moment to come that early. And, you know, I, I talked to some Husky fans who were just like, hey, you know, that's a, a gut-punch, heartbreaking loss to, to a hated rival in a game that they felt they should have won. So it was a real bummer. But whoever gets the four seed in the college football playoff this year will face one of the greatest college football teams of all time um, in, in what will amount to a road game, as it always does when, when Alabama is you, playing at a neutral site. You think Wazoo's going to be the one seed? <laughs> uh, and so... You know, if if you're chasing the four seed in the CFP, what are you really chasing? Right? Sure. And so I, I knew plenty of Husky fans who, even before they were eliminated from the CFP, were like, "Eh, let's let's just let's just try to make the Rose Bowl." You know, let's let's just try to focus on a Pac-12 championship and go play a really good, high-profile, tra- you know, tradition-laden Big Ten program in the Rose Bowl, just like it, it used to be. So that's all still there, and you know, I think that there's. 
uh, a decent amount of optimism um, going into this Apple Cup, given the way it's gone the last five years. Um, but yeah, it's it's an odd blend of disappointment. I don't think anyone thought that this team would have three losses at this juncture in the season. I don't think anybody thought they'd lose to Cal. Yeah. While also mixed with still some optimism of how this thing could end and, and how this senior class could go out. The the Cougars, conversely, uh, seemed like they had you know were heading into a a probably kind of well you know very normally timed rebuilding season at worst, and then it got a lot worse and then it got so much better just truly one of the one of the most fun one of the most unique seasons in i can think of in college football history uh somebody's really got to write a book about it and while a a 10 and 1 season going into the apple cup is historic in its own right the fact that just nobody expected it you know i'm as the cougars have gotten better you see Lots of fans online taking pot shots of like John Wilner for only predicting three or four wins, or you know the media for not giving them respect. Uh, who who truly would have thought that they were going to be anything close to this? You know, John, with the information available, John Wilner was absolutely justified in thinking, well, it's probably going to be a rebuilding season because not only had the Cougars graduated some really good players and lost their starting quarterback, uh, Luke Falk. Then they just had a, a literal off season from hell, and some of, some of the things that happened last off season were so big and obvious that I think we overlooked just some of the other little things that happened to this program. And so I, I'm going to go through just all the adversity. It's an overused word, but all the just the ridiculous amount of adversity the Cougars had faced before the first game of the season this year. They had back to back deflating losses to end the year. They got blown out by the Huskies, then they got blown out by Michigan State. And at that point, there wasn't a lot of positive feeling around the program. I I know it's hard to think that now, but when the next thing happened, when the head football coach literally tried to leave to Tennessee, a lot of, there was a whole lot of good riddance on Cougar Twitter and on the message boards and, and just, uh, well, you know, maybe it's, you know, he got the program in a good place, but, uh, you know, he can't beat the Huskies. So, you know, we'll, we'll see you later, Mike. Uh, and then he doesn't come back, or then Leach does, isn't actually able to leave, but all these popular assistants leave. Jim Mastro leaves. All, you know, half the offense heads to UCLA to chase Chip Kelly. Then the starting quarterback and the most popular player on the team dies by suicide. At that point, the next season's just it, who cares? You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're not thinking they're going to win any games, but why should they be expected to? You've also got the two most productive wide receivers on the team. These two Florida guys transfer. Uh, that's a lot of catches walking out the door. Uh, the coach who came back tweets out a a, uh, a doctored video of a former president to imply that the former president was saying these undemocratic things. Then has kind of a bad next 24 hours in which he really engages with the, the folks who... Uh, pointed out that it was a doctored video in, in, in a way that he probably wishes he could have back. Uh, on a defensive line that had lost, you know, one of the best defensive linemen in school history and didn't really have anyone to replace him, seemingly, a defensive line that was going to start a walk-on nose tackle that he'd never really played. Uh, Jordan Lolohia transfers. You've got, like, the one kind of scholarship guy you were hoping you could groom up and, you know, do some stuff in the Pac-12 he walks out the door. And to top it all off, this all started when Bill Moose, the athletic director and alumni who hired 
Mike Leach walks out in the dead of night to go take the Nebraska job. So it had just been a cavalcade of bad news for the Cougars. And at that point, I truly thought there's just no way this season turns out well at all. Yeah, uh, I I think if you ask most Cougar fans before the season, hey, you can either roll the dice and play this year as is and take your chances, or you can take 6-6 and in a bowl game right now. I don't know how many wouldn't have been fine with six and six. Totally. I, I think if this team had gone out and gone seven and five, you could have made a case for Mike Leach as, as Pac-12 Coach of the Year. Absolutely. Given what given what they went through and and the tragedy with with Tyler and I mean everything involved and in, in rebounding from that and and um, it, it's really it's it's remarkable. Um, you know Gardner Minshew and and the offense. And the numbers aside, it's it's remarkable just that they've got got this team ready to play football by the time the season came around. You know, to say nothing of what they lost on the assistant staff and what they lost through um, player transfers and everything that happened with with Leach in Tennessee. Um, you know, just getting this group ready to to go out and and compete in a Division One football game, I think, was a tall task to begin with. Oh, and they just they truly did. It, it all timed to be a rebuilding year, right? It, it wasn't just losing Luke Falk, and it wasn't just losing Hercules Mata'afa. Jamal Morrow was the heart and soul of that offense for two years. Gerard Wicks was a great player for them. They lost an All-American right guard in Cody O'Connell. They lost their four-year starting center in Riley Sorensen. Uh, maybe that was the year before. Uh, but but they had lost quite a bit. And, uh, you know... To they had some pieces coming back. Peyton Pelour coming back has obviously been a really big thing for them. But mm-hmm. uh, I just it, it's just been such an unexpected season. And when you're only planning for four or five wins, once you hit six or seven, you start to really enjoy. You know, you're playing with so much house money, and you just keep hitting like they have been. Uh, you, you can see why it seems like they're just having more fun than than anyone else in the country right now. Yeah, and. Gardner Minshew is a, a big, big part of that. Big you know, when when the face of your program is this sort of just laid back, easygoing dude from Mississippi with a a mustache and you know big personality, and you know anyone who read uh, Jason Jenks's story on the Athletic uh, last week knows just how how much fun that guy has, and and then the 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 positivity that he's injected into that locker room and. You know, guys really seem to rally around him and really seem to, to kind of be rooting for him from the beginning to win that job. And, um, you know, it, it just kind of it, – it's interesting that uh, Mike Leach is known for great quarter, you know, quarterbacks who put up big numbers and, and big offense and, and all this scoring. And, you know, they were – I think felt so fortunate to find Luke Falk to, to, yeah. to bring him on board as an invited walk-on. And he goes on to set all these records and throw for all these yards. And then he goes out the door. You go and pull a fifth-year grad transfer out of East Carolina, who's just kind of been so-so in his college career. And he's by far the most productive, successful quarterback Mike Leach has had at Washington State. Um, and so it's just, I think he's he's kind of been perfect for them, both in terms of how he operates the offense and, and just how, how poised and how savvy he is and, um, how willing he is to, to kind of take what's there and, and really play the air raid true to, to the way Mike Leach envisions it, but also personality-wise. I mean, he's 
just like I mean, a lot of people have said that Mike Leach is is perfect for Pullman and perfect for Wazoo. I think Gardner Minshew has been a, a perfect fit there for a lot of the same reasons. Absolutely, and I think uh, that is an interesting conversation. Where does a one year rental? Where does the the mustachioed man who kind of rode into town for one year and saved the program and gave him their best year ever potentially? Where does that guy rank uh, among the the great Wazoo quarterbacks? They've they've had top picks, they've they've had NFL success. They've, as you said, they have they own Pac-12 records, they own career Pac-12 records, uh, they own national records. Where do you slot Gardner Minshew in among the great WSU quarterbacks? You know, I, I think it's hard to really evaluate. Luke Falk, given that his best year was his sophomore year. And if you, you, you kind of look at that 2015 season and it's not all that different from what Minshew's done, you know, when he was getting last second wins on the road against Oregon and against UCLA in the Rose bowl. And he, he, they had pretty similar numbers. And I think you could maybe argue the, the conference overall was a little bit tougher back then, mm-hmm. but ultimately if Minshew's able to do what Falk wasn't because he was missing that game and win an Apple Cup and take you to the Pac-12 championship game, does that just count for more than two seasons of really good football but not quite as good as his sophomore year from Falk? I think for a lot of people it will. Um, you know, I'd have a hard time putting Minshew ahead of, like, say, Ryan Leaf. Sure. Um but that could change. There's football to play. Yeah. You know, you're talking about he could be the quarterback who ends Washington's five-game winning streak in the Apple Cup while Washington is still good. He could be a guy who wins their first conference championship in 16 years, a guy who takes him to their first Rose Bowl in the same span. Um, he could be their first Rose Bowl winning quarterback since I'd have to look it up. Um he could, and he has a very outside chance, need some some teams to lose. It's probably not going to happen, but it is still possible he could take this team to the college football playoff. Well, the, there's all those tangible things. There's all the intangible things he's done in terms of bringing in a lot of WSU football fans. He, you know, uh, it's hard to stack him with a, like a Drew Bledsoe, but in, People don't really remember when Drew Bledsoe played unless you're, frankly, kind of old. If you're a WSU student Ouch. right now <laughs> or you're a, you graduated in the last decade, Minshew's by far the most fun quarterback you've ever watched. He's the one that you felt like was just going to go out and beat any team. And that counts for something too, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the the eye test and the way, you know, I think a big part of a quarterback's legacy or like any athlete's legacy is how they made you feel when you watched them play. Sure. And the memories that you associate with them because of that. Like, I grew up watching the Mariners. I don't know that it's possible that they'll ever have a player who I will put ahead of Edgar Martinez and Ken Griffey Jr., Um, because that, you know, they represented a moment in time and like a moment in your childhood that you can never return to, Mm -hmm. but when you see their highlights and you hear their names and you hear people talk about them, you remember exactly how you felt when you watched them play. And I think Gardner Minshew kind of captures that perfectly, that he's just kind of got that, he's, he's got that, that laid back swagger that, that plays so well 
at, at Wazoo and, and um, it's just, you know, he's thrown all these touchdown passes and he's, he's quotable and he's fun and he's likable and he's friendly and, and he's going to go to New York. It's he, quite he, possibly. You know, he's this high school Quite possibly. There, there's all yeah. those. He represents to me sort of the pinnacle of what you dreamed could happen back in 2012 when you hadn't been to a bowl game in a decade. And then you go out and spend so like three times what you were spending on your last coach to go hire Mike Leach. And you kind of think, you know, this guy's coached a top-ranked team. He may, can he get us to a Rose Bowl? And then here's kind of that guy. Who, who came in and, and, and peaked it. Falk set the table, but Minshew's kind of looks like about to bring you home. They're favored uh, in, the, in this game coming yeah, up. Yeah, first time in 12 years they've, they've been favored in the Apple Cup. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an amazing story. I'll, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think this game decides a lot. They go out and lose. Yeah. You know, he was a guy who captivated their imagination for a whole year, got them to 10 wins, which is never anything to sneeze at, but Ultimately, their season in that case would end in the Alamo Bowl. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot riding on the Apple Cup that way, and for for Jake Browning too. Sure. Um, but obviously, a lot more data to work with 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 Browning when you're, you're talking about a legacy. Well, and where does where does Browning rank in the legacy? It seems like for a, a four year starter who's won probably close to forty games or ultimately will, uh, not that popular. No, uh, it's. I always try not to over overemphasize like the people you hear from on Twitter and on message boards because you got to remind yourself that is a they are the minority. You right. know that is a very slim portion of the fan base. And but the people who listen to No Deadline are like the minority of the minority. So we don't want to insult anybody. Yeah. <laughs> You know, when Jake Browning was introduced at, at senior day, it was a, a big, loud ovation, yeah. just like for Miles Gaskin, just like for Greg Gaines, just like for Ben Burkhurvin. So, I mean, I think there's already an appreciation for what he's done and what he's been around for and the offenses that, that he's managed to, you know, 37 victories as a four-year starter now. It's um, pretty good. You know, I think it says something that, they won seven games his true freshman year. You know, that wasn't anybody's idea of a successful season. They were four and six and needed to win their last two just to get into a bowl game. But, you know, he kind of steadily progressed and uh, went into his sophomore year with, you know, a lot higher expectations and really delivered on them, you know, helped them win a, a Pac-12 title and, and played in the playoff. And, you know, personally, and I'm not the only one who shares this opinion, John Ross had a ton to do with that, right? I mean, he was... John Ross was the real Pac-12 offensive player. Yeah, he, John Ross was the best offensive player in the Pac-12 that year. He changed their offense completely. He allowed them to do things they haven't been able to do since. That can't be overlooked. And maybe that 2016 season established uh, a false ceiling for what Jake Browning could be going forward. I think maybe we should have anticipated that uh, if you throw 43 touchdown passes with John Ross and Dante Pettis as your one and two receivers, the expectation shouldn't be that you're going to throw more the next year when Ross right. leaves. Um, don't know that that him going from 43 to 19 the next year was what anybody had in mind. And, you know, as those sort of playmakers have, have been taken away from him, you've seen more of his limitations. And, you know, they the arm strength does lack. He doesn't look like an NFL prospect, and he's, he doesn't have NFL size, and some really, really bad things have happened when he's bailed out of the he, pocket. He's a nice guy, Christian. Tried to make <laughs> plays happen. Well, you know, 
Those are all true. Those those right. those those things are all true. Um, but that doesn't mean that he shouldn't be remembered as one of the greatest quarterbacks in school history. And it seems crazy you even need to say that. He's the all-time leading passer at a school that's put a bunch of quarterbacks in the NFL. Right. Like, in some ways, that's full stop right there. Like, Well, and, and while it's in an era that people do pass more, you know, it, I think pretty much Cody Pickett on is the time frame you kind of look at for those records. But at the same time, they've been the run-first team on the West Coast, them and Stanford. It, it's not like... They're not running any air raids over. He's throwing play action to the tight end to get those yards. He, he broke Cody Pickett's um, career passing record in fewer attempts. Hmm. So, and which is, you know, because I think of Cody Pickett, I mean, you talk about a, a, a throw first, throw second team. Those, yeah. those teams under Rick Neuheisel post-Rose Bowl uh, could not run the ball. Those, those were the worst rushing teams in school history to that point. And so Cody Pickett was throwing the ball a ton. Um, and so, you know, you look at, you look at Jake Browning's numbers, he's been one of the most efficient quarterbacks in, in history. Um, but hasn't really done it on a big stage. Doesn't get, doesn't, doesn't help them beat Alabama. Doesn't help them beat USC earlier that year, you know, falters at at Stanford last year and, and doesn't get them to a Fiesta Bowl win and can't, can't will them to a, a touchdown in their final drive against Auburn this year. Um, whether or not he could have done it against Oregon, if, if they'd given him a chance, you know, a little bit different conversation. But sure. this is this is really Jake Browning's last chance at uh, leading his team to victory against a highly ranked, talented, consistent opponent in an environment where the majority probably are not expecting Washington to win. At the very least, the odds makers have have favored the opponent, and this is the stage typically where. Jake Browning receives the most criticism because they haven't gotten it done. And so he's, he's got a chance at least to notch one of those victories and, and maybe enhance that legacy a little bit. Well, let's talk about the other guy for one second before we really get into the game. While we're talking about legacy, even just in the, the last decade or so, a big part of the reason for UW's dominance in these Apple Cups has been their running backs. They just go nuts. Chris Polk, Lewis Rankin, uh, Sankey, they, for a decade now, they've had really, really good multi-year starting running backs. And Gaskin is a four-year starter. And if they win on Friday, it's going to be because Miles Gaskin had a great game. No, I mean, they they are not going to go into Pullman and win. And Gaskin had less than 150 yards and two touchdowns. Seems probably fair to think that. I would be surprised if uh, if they won without him going over 100 yards, yeah. Where where does he, a a local O'Day Seattle kid who stayed home and rushed for 1,300 yards every year until this one? Is that right? I mean, this year he might not break 1,000 because they've kept him out of some games, but... He will. He's 94 yards short, and they have at least two games left. So, yeah, he's... um... I th- yeah, barring barring injury, I can't imagine he plays two games and finishes those with the t- with less than ninety four yards. But I think he's thirty nine yards away from five thousand for his career. Yeah, where, where's that guy rank? And he's a local guy. I, I think he's the best running back in school history. I mean, at least greatest. Yeah, I look most talented. You know, hard to argue against Corey Dillon or Napoleon Kaufman. Um, Corey Dillon's kind of the Minshew of UW running backs. Yeah, he came in, had had one amazing year, and, and was off to the NFL and had a, a nice NFL career, certainly. Um, yeah, I just think a, a local kid 
who had an offer from the previous staff. New staff had to come in and evaluate him all over again and, and make the decision to pull a trigger on an offer. And he, he still comes to Washington. Um, I don't think anybody on, you know, they've had true freshmen who, after the fact, the, the coaches have said, yeah, like you could tell that guy was just different from day one. That guy was like, we knew he was going to play. Nobody thought Miles Gaskin was going to play as a true freshman. Mm. He comes in, he's a little undersized. I think it took them a while to, to reach out and, and, you know, affirm his offer. Um, and from day one at practice, just balls out. And they, the coaches see him and say, wow, like this guy's really good. And then, you know, he goes for a hundred some against Sacramento state. And by, I think the fourth game, it was obvious like, Oh, okay. Like this true freshman from Linwood is the best running back on the roster. This, they have their guy. This is, this guy's going to be a stud for four years. Yeah. Had a chance maybe to explore the waters, the NFL draft last year comes back this year for, for his senior year, which you don't, you don't see a ton of, especially at that position. And, um, you would think that would matter for his legacy too. Even if he didn't have the senior year, people thought he might just that he, he came back and probably should not have. Yeah. I mean, he comes back and, and, you know, that shoulder injury showed up against UCLA. I wonder if it had, had been around before that. And it, mm. you know, the fact that the first game he ever missed as a college football player was, um, you know, against Colorado this year as a senior to go that, you know, play that many consecutive games carrying the ball as often as he did, you know, really makes you stop and think like, well, gosh, how many injuries has he played through? You know, how much pain has he had to play through at, at that position and take the pounding he does and get to, you know, three quarter mark of his senior year before ever missing a game does miss two games, comes back, basically wills them to victory with a beat up shoulder against Stanford, carries it 28 times, mm-hmm. goes out, has a great, I mean, I, I just think, you know, this senior year probably hasn't gone the way, like you said, people envision for him. Um, but in terms of just, he, he kind of checks every box. Yeah. He's won a conference championship. He was on, he was the, you know, one of the centerpieces of a, of a playoff team as a sophomore. He's been a four year starter. He's, probably going to be the first Pac-12 running back to ever rush for a thousand plus yards in four seasons. He stayed all four seasons and he's, he's got a chance to, 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 to kind of go out with another conference championship and, and a Rose bowl appearance. And if he does that, you know, I, I don't think there's any question that you, you have to regard him as, as probably having the, the greatest career of any running back at Washington. Well, he, you know, you, you talk about importance to their program uh, he and Browning too have a chance not just to, to end their senior year in a Rose Bowl, but to uh, end four and zero in Apple Cups against one of the best, if not the best, four year stretch in Wazoo history. Uh, you know, ended that streak against Oregon pretty emphatically. Uh, started a little streak of their own that didn't last as long as people maybe thought it would, but they got two wins against the Ducks after not beating them for you know, what thirty years or something. Uh, and it all comes down to this game. So uh, maybe we should talk about that a little bit. What do we think is going to happen? Yeah. Um, I I think that the biggest, the most important matchup, and it's the matchup that has dictated the way Washington has dominated this series under Chris Peterson, is up front. Um, Washington's defensive front three or four against a Washington State offensive line that has has helped the Cougars to maybe one of the most remarkable stats in college football this season. Nine sacks in 11 games for how much they throw it. Throwing it all game. That's incredible. Well, especially when you, you look at the number of sacks they've given up 
under Mike Leach. Th- those numbers are always going to be a little inflated because of how much they throw it. But um, this is a program that has, you know, historically, at least this, this last decade or so, had a ton of trouble protecting the quarterback. And they're doing it better than anybody in the country this year. And you talk about a Washington team that has taken a step back in, in the pass rushing department. And a lot of that is because they don't have Vita Bea, first of all. I mean, that guy completely dominated last year's game. He was the deciding factor. When Washington State had the ball, you were watching Vita Bea play. Yeah. I mean, it was it was incredible, the, the, the push he got and how disruptive he was. But... Um, you know, they, they don't have that guy. They have, I think they have a stout defensive line. And this is a defense that's been really good all year. I mean, you you'd certainly would put them among the, the country's top 10 or 15 groups for sure. But they don't they're, – they're not an elite pass rushing team without bringing pressure. And when you have to bring five guys regularly against Gardner Minshew and against this, this offense and this scheme um, – you're asking the the remaining six defenders to cover a lot of space against a team that will use every inch of space you give them on the field. So I, I think whether Washington can push the pocket with three or four guys, um, it, it's going to dictate whether they can keep Gardner Minshew and, and the Cougars from moving the chains and and scoring a bunch of points. Um, you know, I mean, at if, this point, do you, do you think they even try? No one has been able to get to Minshew. Is bringing the heat going to make sense? Or at that point, do you sort of concede that and and just play dime all game? You can't give him all day to throw. I mean, you you can't just say, all right, we're going to drop eight and rush three, and we know we probably won't get to him, but, you know, because then what? He's going to find someone open. You, You could be covering, you know, eight against five, but if a quarterback who is like that smart and that savvy and that like entrenched in that system can scan the field forever without feeling any pressure. Someone's going to get open. Even eight can't cover five forever. So you have to do something to knock him. I mean, I don't think they need to like actually sack him five times or whatever, but they have to do something to knock him off his spot, make him uncomfortable and limit his ability to go through his progression. Mm-hmm. You know, make him make quick, quick decisions. He's good at that anyway, but speed him up a little bit. Make him uncomfortable. Have have some guys around him so that he can't just scan, scan, scan. And, you know, worst case scenario is a, is a check down to, to, to Williams for a 12-yard gain, you know. Totally. I mean, to me, the only way I've been able to picture them containing this offense uh has just been if, if you think back to like that uh the 2015 2016 Apple Cup uh a lot of it wasn't necessarily just getting pressure on the quarterback but so much of it was the you know the the physicality with which they greeted the WSU receivers you know when they when they knocked Gabe Marks out when they were when Azim Victor was just crushing anyone who came near the middle uh I haven't really seen that from the Huskies this year I mean, it it does I'm sure not having a pass rush plays a factor in how uh, hair on fire, their DBs can play. But you did see it a bit in that Utah game when they really just knocked C- Britton Covey around. Is that how they're going to have to win this game? It really does seem like if they tried to bring the house, those running backs are, are good. I mean, James Williams is really good, but this Max Borky kid uh, yeah, he's is really, really going to be a, a problem for the Pac-12 for the next two years before he goes pro. Some of that, that, that maybe lack of physicality, in the secondary, I think most of that, in fact, is is due to the the, the simple fact that teams uh, don't try them. 
you know, they, they know that rap and Brian Murphy, Byron Murphy are going to smack you around. You will not just, yes, that, but you know, I think Jimmy Lake, Washington's defensive coordinator has grown a little bit irritated as the season's gone along about questions of, you know, well, you know, you guys don't seem to be making as many big plays. You've only got a handful of interceptions. What's up with that? And as calmly as he can, he kind of tries to explain, like, well, teams aren't throwing the ball downfield because they know how good Washington's secondary is. Um, you know, Stanford was really the first team to try them downfield, and they picked them off three times. So it's – but the other interesting thing about that is Gardner Minshew doesn't really push the ball downfield either. And so I think that's what's really interesting about that matchup is every team Washington has played – has come in and altered their game plan to Washington's secondary, basically, and has said, well, we can't just take a bunch of shots downfield because those guys are so good and, you know, we'll end up throwing four interceptions. So we're going to dink and dunk, check down, take underneath, run the ball, ball control, hopefully get into the fourth quarter, and it's a close game. Arizona State, Colorado, UCLA, we're all really successful doing that. And all, you know, all wound up being competitive games. Well, Washington State doesn't want to take a bunch of shots downfield anyway. That's the beauty of the air raid is it's not just this like, hey, drop back for six seconds, everyone runs open, you know, chuck it deep, chuck it deep, chuck it deep. When the air raid is working really well, the quarterback's taking what's there. Sure. The court, you know, they're, they're hitting you with a bunch of receiver tunnel screens and running back screens and check downs to running backs and wheel routes and mesh routes that, you know, you're taking advantage of space and – an eight-yard gain, a 12-yard gain, a nine-yard gain. That's a really good way to play if you can get that yardage. And so it's – I think it's – they're going to throw the ball, obviously, way more than anybody Washington plays against. But it's not this, like, you know, barrage of, of downfield passes like some people might think it is. It's it's a bunch of stuff underneath. It's taking what's there. It's screens. It's checkdowns. And that's really, really effective if you don't have guys who can run sideline to sideline and minimize those those sort of yards after catch the way the air raid relies on. So yeah. that's I think WSU's passing game will you know resemble in in style a little bit the way some teams have played against them just in terms of of, of short passes and, and that sort of thing. Um, but that's the way they play. It's it won't be altered to, to UW's defensive style. So I'm going to be interested to see how that, that I think plays out. This team has done a little more up at the scene passing. You see Renard Bell and Calvin. They're they're two inside receivers. It seems like once a game they'll have a 50 yarder down the field. Oh yeah, I mean and they're I, definitely going to take their shots. Those will be interesting. Those will be very key interesting plays. The few times a game that happens, that's going to go very well or very poorly. Because I also think Mitch, you just. In his career, has he played a defense like this, where he's every defensive back they trot out there is probably going to get drafted, and so the timing's off. The, the speed, those, those windows are just so much; they close so quickly. And maybe, maybe it takes a quarter, or maybe it takes a bad mistake or something for him to figure it out. I do think they will get their points. It just no one has really stopped them, and they're. I mean, we've seen Wazoo offenses that put up great points before. You know, they put 69 on Arizona. Well, they put 69 on Arizona two years before. But what's the number? What do you think Wazoo has to get to win this game? Put it another way, how much can we expect from the UW offense against this defense? I think the the stat that Washington put out after the Oregon State game was that I think they're, I want to say, 38-0 under Chris Peterson when they score 31 or more points. Mm Mm-hmm. So 
That's 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 a neat easy one right there. Let's say thirty one, right? Let's say first to thirty one wins this game. I think um, you know, and that thirty point mark has has kind of been a, a, a bridge too far for for Washington this year. That yeah. even when they they jump out, they jump Stanford, and they're up twenty one nothing at halftime, and uh, for whatever reason can't put them away, and and only end up scoring twenty seven points. Yeah. Um, they have 24 at halftime against UCLA, and they do end up with 31, but only score one touchdown in the second half. Game winds up being a lot closer than than people thought it would. Um, you know, they they are just horrible at Cal and only score 10 points, and probably still should have won that game. But you know, it's a, a conversation for another day. Sure. Um, and, and you know, Oregon, if they if they hit that uh, field goal there. At the end of uh, regulation, they would have won with 27. You know, still didn't didn't get to 30. So, um, yeah, it's uh, I think that 30, 31 point mark. If they can hold Wazoo below that, I, I think they'll have a, at least a chance. Um, but scoring 28, scoring 31 themselves against this Wazoo defense is is no sure thing. I do think Washington's offense is improving and is kind of starting to click a little bit at, at, at the right times. How big was the buy for them? It seemed like maybe Gaskin was a little hurt during the season. They were missing some players who I, I think played against Oregon State. Yeah, it was it was huge. Um, nobody would ever prefer to have a buy in week 11. Yeah. But based on what their health situation was going into that buy and, and who was able to play against Oregon State, uh, I think that was a. It, it did end up coming at a great time. Not that they couldn't have used it earlier, but yeah, I mean, Miles Gaskin misses two games, comes back and carries 28 times against Stanford. If you don't have to turn around and play another game and, and give that guy the ball a bunch more times seven days later, that's great. And, and they didn't have to. I mean, he said he spent the week, you know, on his couch watching Netflix, you know, rest, resting up. Then he goes out against Oregon State and looks totally fine, right? right. He hasn't shown any ill effects from the shoulder. Um, Jordan Miller and Miles Bryant, two really important starters in the defensive backfield, um, both missed the the Stanford game due to injury. Get the bye week, they both come out and, and play like play and start like normal uh, against Oregon State. Shane Bowman, who had been out forever, broke a bone in his foot in September. Uh, they had said, hey, they were kind of targeting that Oregon State game for when he could get back. He gets back, mm-hmm. plays a little bit, so that's a really important D line piece they're going to have going into the Apple Cup. Uh, DJ Beavers played against Auburn, got hurt in practice the following week, hasn't played since. He suited up. He played a few snaps against Oregon State off the bye. And, oh, by the way, Trey Adams played for the first time against Oregon State. You know, worked his ass off to get back from from ACL surgery last October. Seemed like he was going to be able to play going into the Auburn game. Ends up having a back injury that requires surgeries out for another couple months. Finally, they get him on the field against Oregon State. He only played two series. He had a holding call. Um, you know, he's yeah, got some rust to knock off. Are, the, can, are those rusty players, do you think, will they be able to rely on in this game? You know, it's, it's great that they came back, but are you against the number seven team in the country? Are you rolling out there with a left tackle who's played a few snaps in the last three yeah, months? Yeah, of that group, I would see, I'd probably say Trey Adams would have the least impact just because. I mean, that position is, well, you know, the offensive line. It's the most physical position in, in football. Right. Um, he hasn't played in a game in 13 months until Saturday. Um, 
it's going to take him a minute to get back to game speed. And Chris Peterson said afterward that, yeah, like absolutely it is going to be a gradual buildup. And, you know, it's, it's not like if I just said, Hey, with zero context, would you rather have Trey Adams at left tackle or Jared Hilvers? You'd think Trey Adams, but okay. Well, would you rather have Trey Adams who's played all of two series of, of real game football in the last 13 months and is coming off two surgeries at left tackle or Jared Hilbers, who started every game but one and has done some decent, you know, decent enough things that he's earned praise from from coaches and teammates. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not just like, hey, is Trey Adams healthy and ready to play? It's is he a better option than the guy who's been starting at left tackle all season in his stead? And even Jake Browning, after you know, after the game, someone asked him, hey, how nice was it to have Trey Adams back? And said, yes, awesome, it's great. Obviously, he's an amazing player. We want him out there. But don't forget about Jared Hilbers either, because Jared Hilbers has done some nice things this season. So, you know, it, I'm not saying that that uh, he's the, he's a similar All America candidate or, or NFL draft prospect, obviously. But um, you know, the circumstances have changed a little bit. So I I wouldn't expect to see a ton of Trey Adams, maybe more than two series, because that would make sense. They'd be building him back up. But I do think guys like Shane Bowman uh, and DJ Beavers could be more of a factor. And you know, Jordan Miller and Miles Bryant were like back to normal last week. So, you know, those, those are two guys who I'd expect to be at full strength. Okay. Well, it, it should be a really good game. One of these two teams is going to the Rose bowl. And then what happens? You know, we, uh, you're going to get some, some hate mail from some Utah <laughs> fans, man. Well, as long as they stop by, uh, Etsy Bravo, the next time they're in Pullman and order a no deadline, I, I'll take it. But you know, it, it seems like neither these teams are going anywhere. I kind of think for Washington state in particular, maybe, that's the legacy of Gardner Minshew is that this could have, you know, the, everything they'd built up, if they'd had a four or five win season, if they'd missed a bowl game. All of a sudden it's kind of hard to sell recruits on your program again. And all of a sudden you've, you've brought in these new assistant coaches. They go through a rebuilding year. They're not having a great time. Uh, maybe it was all Falk and Mata Afa. And now that, you know, he was just such a seamless bridge and what seemed like it maybe could have been a, a recruiting class that was a step back. You lose all those assistants, all their relationships. You've you've had Mastro, uh, you know, working the high school coaches in the 2019 class for years, and then he leaves. Maybe you take a step back recruiting, but now it seems like the opposite's going to happen. They're going to again have Mike Leach's best recruiting class ever, and it's probably true. They've got a four-star linebacker coming in. They've got. This Patrick Uchinski kid, offensive tackle from Walla Walla, who seems like he's going to be their next kind of Abe Lucas, Andre Dillard. They've got all these very good players. Dante Powell was a four-star guy. Uh, And it really feels like the evolution of the program has been, okay, they convinced the wide receivers to come here. They got Gabe Marks to come here. They got those four-star guys out of Florida because they wanted to catch a lot of balls. Then they got a quarterback to come here. You know, they got Cameron Cooper uh, into the program, and he's their first guy who seems like he's a really, really, really good recruit who's sticking around, who they can groom into being a very, very good quarterback for the Cougars. Uh, Max Borgie was, and James Williams, they've started to kind of get these really good skill position players. Now they're starting to get these really good linemen. And once you start doing that, everything just gets way easier. They got that transfer from West Virginia at nose tackle that's gonna that's sitting out right now, but he's practicing – he was a four-star guy. You know, I, I think the legacy of this year's team, in addition to being the best team in program history, potentially, 
is that it really kind of solidified all of those gains. Now the Cougars are just going to be an issue for, for years to come. In a Pac-12 North, it looks like a, a real, you know, is, is it going to be the most difficult division in college football, them in the SEC uh, East? They've got Cal looking pretty good. Almost beat both packed both Washington teams. Stanford's going to be Stanford. Oregon's got the number four recruiting class in the country or something. And Oregon State seems kind of fun under Jonathan Smith. At least they have a lot of gadget plays and a really good running back. So yeah, the, the Beavers are plucky. Uh, they're I I love the way they play. I love the way Jonathan's. I know this is not the, what we're going to discuss here, but you raise an interesting point. I love the way that Jonathan Smith has approached this team offensively, like. They go into every game just knowing, like, hey, if we play these guys straight up, we have no chance. So we're going to run reverses and fake punts and drop kick, line drive, squib onside kicks off of the up man. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess Wazoo, they pulled out every trick play in the book. I think Someone asked Jonathan Smith on the Pac-12 coaches call last week about his philosophy for going for it on fourth down because they'd gone for it a, a bunch and had been pretty successful this season. And he said that it – a big part of it is just the mentality of, you know, getting the message across to your team that field goals aren't good enough. Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily need to have that attitude if you're not like a huge underdog in every game. So like, I, I appreciate the way that he has kind of gone into, you know, offensive game planning this year. Like no, we're, we're not kicking field goals. Like we're going to go for it on fourth down if it's close or like even borderline. Cause we want our guys thinking we got to score touchdowns all the time to to, to have a chance against teams. So I I do appreciate that. But to your point, and talking about recruiting, um, yeah, the way that Oregon is cleaning up right now and, and, you know, picking up top 100 commitments left and right and the presence that they've kept in California, you know, if they can hold on to those guys, if those guys pan out, um, you know, it seems like there's a little bit of momentum going there. I don't think you're super impressed with the, the new coaching staff's coaching this year. No. Kind of going back to the bowl game last year. But it certainly seems like the program at this point, the uh, the facilities at this point, the connection with Nike uh, sells itself to the degree that Oregon will never be bad again. They're, they're always going to be okay, at least. They're always going to have some really good players. Yeah. But did anyone think they'd go 4-8? and eight? under Mark Helfrich that year? No, but I, you know, if they'd kept Helfrich, I think that they'd have had an eight-win season in the last three somewhere. I think they'd just fall into him. Yeah, that, that's probably fair. A um, lot of momentum for Washington on the recruiting front right now. I mean, there are um, a number of guys in state in, in the coming classes. I mean, Savelle Smalls, the, the five-star linebacker out of Garfield in 2020, whole slew of guys at Eastside Catholic who... Um, you know, they, they've offered a couple at this point. I think some folks are waiting for them to, to offer the rest of them in 2020 and 2021. Those guys are all going to be huge. Um, Sam Heward in the, in the 2021 class, you know, sure. that's, that's an absolute must get. Um, well, he's got to play against Millen's kid at Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, that wouldn't that be fun? Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of guys in future classes, who I think are rightfully getting getting the headlines right now, and it's going to be really important to to pick those guys up. But you know the way they're closing out this this 2019 class, uh, I think is uh, bodes well for the future. Especially you know everyone knows how hard it is to find elite 
D tackle prospects. There's just not a lot of sure. you know six four six six three three hundred and twenty pound dudes walking around. But you know they've they've got now Jacob Bandes and Fatui Tuatele committed in this 2019 class. You know um, uh, hard to think of, of a better D tackle duo at least prospect wise signing signing in one class. And well, I mean those those are just the key position. It's quarterback and a nose tackle. That's why this Lamont McDougal kid, they got to transfer who was a freshman all American. That's one of the biggest recruits in school history. If it pans out, it's just, uh, schools go three or four years without getting a three star nose tackle. It seems like, so if they're starting to get five star ones, then, uh, maybe they'll start getting some sacks again in the near future. Yeah, it's, you know, what did we talk about the biggest factor in this game Friday? Uh, you know, what was the biggest factor last year? Vita Vea, yeah. blowing guys up. I mean, if you you got a, a chance to, um, you know, pick up a guy like that, uh, you know, along with Tuatele and Bandies, you know, Asam, Apama, another Hawaiian recruit, you know, they, they've really stepped up their game. Ikaika Malloy has been... Um, you know, really, really solid. I think they got five guys from Hawaii who are going to sign in this class now. And um, Braylon Trice kind of stealing him away. A lot of people thought he was going to end up at Notre Dame and he gives them a nice option at Buck coming in, which is, you know, aside from D tackles talking defensively, those, those outside linebackers, those edge rushers are hugely important in Jimmy Lake and NP Kwiatkowski's defensive scheme. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how Dylan Morris pans out. I, I think, Hey, anytime you, you sign a, a local quarterback who's that highly rated and, and everything, you know, that's only going to add to that room. That's another four-star quarterback recruit they're rolling in there. Um, you know, I, I think uh, they, they, they like Cameron Williams, uh, safety prospect they got to commit from, who I think still plans to enroll early. Obviously, Asa Turner is a big athletic dude. We'll see where he ends up. Could be safety or linebacker. And But you're only as good as your coach. And, uh, Two very hot commodities a coach. What do you think? Does does USC make a run at Peterson? <laughs> it kind of seems like they already danced that dance. You know, yeah. you know the, the, the year he ended up at Washington, there was they talked, and I think conflicting reports on kind of who said no to who. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the truth is somewhere in the middle that it was just kind of obvious to both sides that you know what this is probably is Chris Peterson in Los Angeles probably is not the the best fit. I can't imagine uh, if they did. If they did even pick up the phone and reach out, I, I can't imagine he'd be interested. I don't know that uh, for what he wants to do in the program he runs. Uh, I don't know that there's anything that he can do at, at USC that he can't do at Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously you're, you're going to get a uh, you're going to get a higher rated recruiting class at USC every year. You just will. Um, you're, you're right in the middle of the West Coast's recruiting hotbed there in, in Southern California and a Chris Peterson program at USC could probably do pretty well that way. Yeah. Um, but I think their recruiting at Washington has gone, uh, just fine yeah. recently. And I, you know, I think, yeah, I, I just, I don't think that that's the kind of thing that Peterson would prioritize anyway. Um, and it's, it's not like he's not getting paid, you know, he's, he's going to be making almost $5 million a year here soon. Um, Washington has shown a big commitment financially to his assistant staff. They've got a huge recruiting budget. They've got all the, you know, the nice snazzy new facilities. And, Mm -hmm. 
geographically, I, I think, I don't know that there's a lot of schools he would have left Boise State for. Um, so I think the fact that Washington is in Seattle and is kind of in that, that uh, northwest region was a big factor in him leaving Boise to begin with, and I just don't see him, like, walking away from Washington to go coach at another Pac-12 school. I just, I just can't see it. Well, what do we think about uh, Mike Leach? That's that's a tougher one. I mean, a guy who was seemingly desperate to leave a year ago, who now, you know, it, it seemed like maybe schools weren't that high on him, who, you know, kind of got, maybe Tennessee's athletic director got fired for offering him the job, or, uh, but who now uh, is almost certainly going to be the national coach of the year. I just could not imagine somebody else winning it. Uh, a yeah, guy who really to seems to uh, have a very hot brand right now, who certainly probably scared away some future uh, or some other presidents or future potential pursuers with the whole uh, Dr. Obama video thing, but who has since been uh, very good on social media, who seems to kind of use it to promote the school now and promote the athletic director. Uh, but who also, likewise, is now getting paid. Uh, the school made a huge financial commitment to him, and it, he's certainly got things rolling in Pullman. It would certainly be easier, and uh, a, certainly an easier life to stay at Wazoo and keep winning 10-ish games for the rest of his days and get a statue built someday. But maybe if they don't make the playoffs this year, he thinks, I got to go somewhere where uh, you know the national media is going to pay a little more attention. The other thing is how many of those jobs are even going to be open, right? I mean, this is, um, this is supposed to be a fairly light coaching carousel season. A lot of hires last year. Yeah. Um, you know, would he leave Wazoo for Colorado? Like why, you know, that like, so I'm just thinking like what, what jobs are open right now? What jobs are going to be open? You know, USC is not going to be calling him. Um, I, I, I don't know that there's, nearly as much for Wazoo fans to worry about this offseason as, as last offseason when it really seemed like he was intent on on getting out of there, at least to Tennessee. You know, who knows what, what his reaction would have been to other opportunities. But, um, yeah, I, I, I just – I don't see a job opening up that, one, makes sense for – on Mike Leach's end. Right. Um, and, two, would, would make sense for the, the school with the opening. No, I, I think – if you're a Wazoo fan, what, where you're watching is the, your defensive coordinator who had a really successful stint as a interim head coach, uh, actually beat your team in the bowl game when he was the interim head coach, uh, who seems like a just a very, very competent builder of defenses, whose players at Minnesota, uh, from what I could tell when I was covering that bowl game, just loved the guy. They're all really banded around him. Granted, he had really gone on a, on a limb for them. When uh, he uh, sided with his players in the middle of that whole uh, uh, the situation they had going on there and, and took some real backlash from his administration because of it. But he's a player's coach. He knows how to coach a defense. And he's been a Big Ten head coach before, if only briefly. So it, it will be interesting to see if somebody comes calling for him. Yeah, and, you know, if they do... They'll hire another defensive coordinator. I mean, yeah. look, every people they, they brought in Alex Grinch. That seemed like a little bit of a gamble. And, you know, kind of we talked about Luke Falk and Hercules Mata'afu being the, the type of players who kind of set the foundation and created a little bit of a higher launching pad for, for this program to take off from. 
I think coaching wise, Alex Grinch laid the foundation for what Wazoo was going to be defensively. And, you know, I think Tracy Clay's wisely has, you know, he hasn't come in and, and uh, tried to try to reinvent the wheel with their defense. They've recruited to a certain style, right? The speed D wanted to be able to, they don't have, you know, big hulking guys up front necessarily. They want to be, they want those guys to be mobile, be able to run sideline to sideline and, and twist and stem and all that. And, um, the, they've added some tweaks to it, but it really doesn't look a whole lot different from what they were under Grinch. No, and, you know, Chris Peterson talked about that today about how like, so the one thing that gets overlooked with Wazoo is you just think of them as having like this funky, unique, different offense you have to prepare for. But he's like, they're really different on defense too. You know, they, they, you don't see a lot of teams running the, the stuff that they run and recruiting to the personnel that they recruit to. So, um, you know, I think that that's a big advantage for them that they've, they've got these two really kind of different schemes for, for teams to prepare for. Well, it's so interesting too, that they've had such contrasting styles, whereas on offense, it's about the structure. I'm not saying that they're, they're, you know, uh, system players or anything like that, but Leach is going to do what he's going to do. And you guys are going to drill that until you're experts at it, until you're perfect at it. This is what the system's going to be. And they may introduce some new things, but he's, trying to find a really, really accurate quarterback because that's what the system wants. He doesn't care as much about the arm strength or their mobility because that's what the system wants. He wants these types of really, really large offensive linemen that can do these big, wide splits because that's how he does it. Grinch kind of came in and said, well, we don't have size, so we're going to go with speed. We're going to build this thing. Uh, We're going to call it the speed D. We're going to have tiny defensive linemen who can stunt and twist and get to the quarterback before the offensive linemen get out of their stance. Clays comes in and he says, I'm only ever going to ask a player to do what their strength is. I'm never going to ask someone to play to their weakness. I'm going to find out what they're good at. And the defense is just going to be the combination, the best combination of 11 guys doing what they're good at. And it's so anti, it's so different than what Leach does, but they both have managed to do it so well. It really does seem like when you're hiring a, these coaches, you just, you're hiring someone regardless of what they like to do, just if they're good at doing it. Don't you think if if he were a courageous man, he'd say, "I'm going to put the best ten guys, mm. the best nine guys." I only have wait, seven wait, players wait. I really like. The best eight guys. Well, after that, you got to well, think hold, about how many guys you have on the line hold of scrimmage. On. There's the best rules, seven Christian guys. Then you're getting in illegal formations. The best six guys. Uh, I like where you're headed. Wait, hold on. Do you have something new? The best five times. Oh, you got me again. <laughs> well, uh, that's our hour. Uh, thank you so much for uh, asking us to do this. We really don't get to see each other as much as we used to. And it's always just a lot of fun to talk Huskies and Cougs when we do. Uh, this has been no deadline. Uh, it's been a year, but you know what? We didn't put a deadline on ourselves. That would be very antithetical to what we, mm. what our mission with no deadline was. Very off-brand. Very off-brand. So maybe we'll do it again sometime. We can't say when. Uh, we hope you enjoy your rivalry week, Thanksgiving, etc. Oh, yeah. Goodbye. Have fun. <laughs>